Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a loving God and you've expressed your love to us in so many ways. Lord, we thank you that you love us by speaking to us and we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word and that we have it before us this morning. Lord, we pray that you may love us by giving us much of your Holy Spirit as well. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have deposited in our hearts as a seal, guaranteeing our salvation. But Lord, we pray that he may really help us this morning to look into your word together and be changed and transformed more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we do indeed pray that you would love us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most humbling things to do as a parent, I think, is to be a judge in the home. Uh, Sometimes it's fairly easy to be a judge and to say, yes, this is the wrong that has been committed and this is the punishment that is accordingly needed in this situation. But at other times, difficult cases come before you. You're not always there to see what happened between two children. And you come in, one is crying uh, quite uncontrollably, and there is another person present there who is standing there just looking at the other person crying uncontrollably. And the person who's crying is looking viciously at the other person, and you can't work out exactly what has taken place. And communication at a certain age is very uh, minimal. And so you ask questions. You ask, did you hit your sister? And there's a nod of the head. And you say, really, did you hit your sister? And there's a shake of the head. And you, you can ask the same question multiple times. And you probably get roughly the same differing answers uh, the number of times that you actually ask it. You would get a, a number of yeses and a number of noes. And it just seems like you don't really know what to do in that case. It's a very difficult case to judge. And so as a parent, it's very humbling at times to know that you have this responsibility to be the judge in the home and uh, you don't have all knowledge, you don't have all power, and so you aren't able to always make the judgments that you would like to make. And judgment doesn't just happen in our families. It also happens in another family, in particular, God's family. Judgment does happen in God's family. God is a judge, and he's not just a judge of people outside the church. He's also a judge of people inside the church. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, is the role of God as judge, as judge of the family and of judge of people outside his family. But firstly, does he actually judge his family? And that's my first main point this morning, is God judges his family. And we can see that in the passage that we're looking at in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 and 18 are the verses we're looking at this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, and it's found on page 1203 of the Black Church Bibles, and we see there that God does indeed judge his family. Verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. With the family of God. Now what does it mean that God judges the family of God? What does judgment mean? Well, judgment actually has two kinds of meanings. Uh, It can mean uh, condemnation. When God judges someone, it's a scary thing because he is actually punishing them. Judgment falls upon someone. And judgment, but judgment can also mean just a testing, an evaluation. So what sort of judgment is God making of the family of God here? Well, I think it's actually both. I think God judges his family in both kinds of ways. Firstly, does God evaluate you as a Christian, test you? Yes. Does he weigh up your life? Does he do that even now? 
I mean, we talk about judgment day, but does God judge you even now? Yes, it says in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. It is time right now. The season has arrived. Judgment is meant to be beginning now. And it begins with who? The family of God. Now, how does God evaluate your life? Well, firstly, he weighs up how you respond to him, how you live your life in response to his gospel. Do you submit yourself to God's good news? Do you repent of your sins and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and receive justification from God? Have you experienced that? Have you responded to his good news? And then God evaluates your life after your justification as well, how you're living your life as a Christian. Are you being holy as you should be? He looks at your justification, but he also looks at your sanctification, the ongoing process, uh, progressive sanctification, that process by which you become more and more like Jesus Christ. And he's weighing you up, testing you. Even now, he's looking at you and saying, what are you doing? Are you doing what is right or are you doing what is wrong? So God judges you even now. If you are in the family of God... It's not as though you're exempt. You know how some people, when it comes to their own family, they sort of let people off the leash and they don't really judge them too much. You see that with some parents. They, their child never does anything wrong. It's always other children outside the family who do something wrong. Never their children. Does that happen in the family of God? No. God looks at his own children as well and weighs them up. And if you come up short in the evaluation, if God looks at your life and the way you're living and judges you by what you're doing and says, yes, Joel's doing something wrong at the moment, does he do anything about that? Does he rectify the problem? Well, that brings me to my second main point this morning. God judges his family worthy of mild suffering. God judges his family worthy of mild suffering. Judgment means a weighing up of people, but also it means a handing out of punishment. And does God punish his people when they fall short in his evaluation? Does he do that even now? Yes, remember what it said in verse 17, for it is time for the judgment to begin with the family of God. He does that even now. He punishes us if we do the wrong thing. How does he do that? Well, he disciplines us, and he often does it through suffering. God does discipline his church. Hebrews 12 is very clear about that, and so clear and uh, so important for us to understand that I want you to just flip to that now. Page 1193 of the Black Church Bibles, Hebrews 12, just a few pages before 1 Peter. Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read from verse 5 through to verse 11. Hebrews chapter 12, page 1193 of the Black Church Bibles. Hebrews 12, I'll read from verse 5, where the author writes, And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son family member, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship, suffering, as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our, father disciplined, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. <clears throat> no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but fa- painful. 
Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. It's quite clear from this passage that God judges his family and punishes them when they do the wrong thing. And he does it, why? Because we are his family and he is a legitimate father. The reason I judge my own family is because I want to be a legitimate father. But it's very encouraging to know that when God punishes us with suffering, that he's able to do it better than any any human father can. What does it say in verse 10? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. I come into situations and I have to discipline and I do it as I think best, but I'm not really sure uh, what happened. And I don't know whether the punishment that I'm doing is actually going to be the best for that person. But God disciplines us, it says in verse 10, for our good that we may share in his holiness. And so when we experience suffering, which is what this whole passage in 1 Peter 4 has been about, the suffering, we've got to remember that that's part of God's judging us and he's doing it for our good so that we can actually have parts of our lives that are weak and wrong ironed out. When we become a Christian... Yes, we do not have that punishment eternally in hell that we deserve. But we still are imperfect beings. And God uses discipline, suffering in our lives to iron out those parts of our lives that need ironing out. And so God irons out that unholiness in our life and brings growth in us. That's what it says in verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So when we suffer from uh, experience suffering, that's God disciplining and training us. He's helping overcome those weaknesses in our lives where it may be that you just don't trust God enough and so he brings suffering into your life so that you cling to him all the more closely than you would if you experienced a time of great pleasure and joy and prosperity. He brings that suffering into your life to discipline and train you and strengthen you. So God is very good to his family, even in the midst of suffering. He's actually training us and strengthening us. But Peter is honest that that's painful. I mean, the Hebrews passage says that as well in verse uh, 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And Peter says uh, in, in his own uh, passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, he recognises that it's actually quite difficult for the life of the Christian as well. Uh, that, yes, it's all very easy to say, yes, in suffering God is working for my good, but it's difficult to experience suffering. It's not a pleasurable thing when we go through it even though it's working for our good and so he says in verse 18 and if it is hard for the righteous to be saved he recognizes that it's hard for the righteous to be saved he's quoting from proverbs chapter 11 there he's recognizing that to be a christian it's hard work in this world and jesus himself says that in the sermon on the mount in matthew 7:14 he says small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it if you become a christian it's not like life will suddenly just get really really good no it can be really really hard if it is hard for the righteous to be saved it can be really hard work to stay on that narrow path experiencing the suffering that is getting rid of those sinful weaknesses that you have in you. And so you have to work at it. You have to humble yourself to go through that narrow gate of submitting to Jesus and saying, I can't save myself from my sins. I need you, O God. 
and then continuing to trust in him even in the midst of persecution for being a Christian or any other type of suffering, trusting that God is in control of that situation. It's difficult work, but God does do it. We're not a church here who believes that God somehow has lost control when we suffer. No, we recognise that God judges his family, he tests his family, and he judges his family in saying that we are worthy of suffering. But it is a mild form of suffering. My second main point was God judges his family with a worthy of a mild suffering. And I'll come back to that uh, in a few moments. So if judgment begins with the family of God, then where does it end? Where does judgment end? What does he say in verse 17? He says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us... What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So my third main point this morning is God judges unbelievers too. God judges unbelievers too. Non-Christians sometimes seem to get a pretty good run in this world. They seem to be able to sin as much as they like, enjoy the pleasures of sin, and nothing bad seems to happen to them. They go along in their lives and everything is hunky-dory for them. And they are free even sometimes to persecute Christians heavily and nothing happens. No bolt of lightning comes out of heaven and strikes them down. No human authority comes along and removes them from office. They die a peaceful death of old age. Seen that again and again with some rulers of different empires and countries even today. They escape any kind of justice in this world. Does God judge them? He judges his own family. Does he judge people outside the family? Some people are very critical of their own selves and their own family, but they never say a word about other people's families. They have the opposite problem. Some people, they think their children don't need judging and they are always judging other kids. But then there's some people who are always very control freaks on their families and they don't seem to pay much attention to what's going on outside. They say, oh, each person to their own, but this is how we do it in our family. And they're quite free for you to do what you like. But God, he judges his own family and he judges unbelievers as well. Verse 17 and verse 8, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's saying, he's inferring, he's, it's a rhetorical question, it will end with the unbelievers. It may begin with the family of believers, the suffering, but there will be judging for the unbelievers as well. It comes to the ungodly as well. And we saw that back in verse 5 when it was talking in verse 4 about unbelievers insulting, um, they're heaping abuse on the Christians, but what does it say in verse 5? But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God does judge unbelievers. He judges his own family, but he judges unbelievers. He weighs them up. And one day he will weigh them up and see where they are wanting. Then the question is, if God weighs up his people and then punishes them, and then he weighs up unbelievers, does he punish unbelievers as well? Christians obviously experience suffering. They're deemed worthy of suffering in this world. What about unbelievers? They seem to sometimes escape all kinds of suffering. Does God weigh them up and then don't do anything when he discovers that they've been doing the wrong thing? No, my fourth main point says God judges unbelievers worthy of severe suffering. How bad will the suffering for non-Christians be when they're found wanting in God's eyes? Well, if Christians suffer in this life, 
Non-Christians must suffer tremendously when judged. That's what Peter is getting at in these two verses, verse 17 and 18. He's comparing two groups and saying, okay, if this is what happens to Christians, then what happens to non-Christians? What happens to Christians? How do they live? And then what happens to them? Well, Christians live pretty good lives in some senses. I mean, yes, we're still sinful creatures as Christians, but we're called righteous in verse 18. Very interesting. Verse 18 and says, And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Christians are deemed righteous, particularly through the work of Jesus Christ. We have justification. We've responded to the gospel of God. And so we are counted righteous. We have robes of righteousness on. And so it's quite right when it says in verse 18, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, we can be called righteous. And then in our actual lives, we start to live progressively better and better lives. We start to overcome the sin in your life. If you are a true Christian, you should see yourself conquering sin. If you say you are a Christian and then carry on with the way you were before and you live and look like an unbeliever in every respect, then you should really question your faith. You should read the book of 1 John, which looks at the love of a Christian is a great sign that they are a person who loves God. And if they profess love for God yet hate their brother, well then he says the truth is not in you. And so Christians should be living holier lives. So they should be, they live pretty good lives. They're justified through Christ, so they're righteous in that sense. And then they're righteous in the way that they live. And then one day they actually stop sinning altogether. When does that happen? When you die or Jesus comes back. There's an end to your sin. Praise the Lord. I just, I'm, I'm looking forward to it so much. There is a day coming when Joel Radford will stop sinning. And it's wonderful to consider. So they were pretty decent, really. And so it's not surprising we're all righteous and we're part of the family of God. But how much suffering do we experience as a Christian? We've experienced great suffering. Even though we're righteous people, one day our sinning will stop, we've responded to the gospel, we've suddenly told our lives, and yet we still suffering in this world. So what does that then mean? When God judges non-Christians, well, how do the non-Christians live? Well, they live terrible lives, don't they? They disobey the gospel, says in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to give him with the enemy of God, and if it begins with the past, all the outcome will be for those who do not obey the gospel of God. Christians who respond to the gospel of God, the good news is that they can have salvation through Jesus Christ at the cross. What do the non-Christians do? They, they do, do not respond to that gospel. They, they reject it. They say, I don't want God in my life. I don't want Jesus Christ in my life. Furthermore, they keep on sinning. They reject the gospel, and then they keep living lives of unholiness. There's no progressive sanctification in the life of non-Christian. There's no gradual conquering of sin. In fact, often what happens is God hands them over to greater and greater sin. There's different levels of sin. And God, God often, you just read Romans 1, it speaks very clearly about people who have rejected God, and God, what does he do? Progressive sanctify them? No. He hands over what they want, and they get worse and worse in the way that they live. And then what happens? One day they die, or Jesus comes back, do they stop sinning for all eternity? No, there's no hint of that in the Bible. They reject the gospel, they live unholy lives, and they keep on sinning for all eternity. 
There's no repentance in hell. There's no gift of faith. Repentance and faith are gifts from God. Do they get handed out in hell to people? No. People in hell are there. They're they're submitting to God's punishment, but are they submitting with a respect of him and saying, yes, you are right, O God, to be doing this to me? They're still hating God. They keep on sinning for all eternity. And so God does indeed judge people outside the church, outside his family, judge them by weighing them up, and then by punishing them. How much suffering do they experience? Well, Peter infers that it must be pretty painful. He won't even really mention it. Did you notice that in verse 17 and 18? He says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. If it begins with us and we experience all this suffering, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will it be? And then verse 18, And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What will happen to them? If we, who have been justified through Jesus Christ, progressively live holier lives, stop sinning one day, we still suffer in God's righteous judgment, what will happen to non-Christians? Peter, he doesn't tell you. He's, he's saying it's got to be really, really bad if you compare the two groups. The rest of the scriptures tell us, they tell us it's eternal pain in hell, eternal suffering that goes on and on. And the Bible, even when it talks about hell, it, it sort of it can't really get at it. It gives us different illusions as to what will be happening there, but we just don't understand how terrible it will be. And so non-Christians definitely are judged by God. They're judged in that they're weighed up. Their time is coming. It may not be now, but their time is coming. They're going to be weighed and they're going to be found wanting and they're going to be eternally punished. So what are you to do? We've seen that Christians are judged. We've seen that non-Christians are judged. What are you to do? Well, fifthly this morning, I want my fifth main point is judge yourself worthy of suffering. Everyone in this room is going to be judged by God or is judged by God and found worthy of suffering, whether it be as the family of God or outside the family of God. You're either in two camps here. There's no offence. You're in the family of God or you're outside the family of God. And we've seen this morning that both camps are judged. So what are you going to do? Well, if you are a Christian, judge yourself worthy of the suffering that you experience. When you experience great pain and suffering, say, this is right. I need this. I don't know exactly why, maybe, but God knows why. He is all-knowing. He knows what's best, and he has judged me worthy of this suffering. And so you judge yourself worthy of that suffering. You recognise that you're a weak creature, you have parts of you that still need ironing out, and you accept the suffering as a training to get rid of those parts of your life that need ironing out. And then you can take comfort in the fact that your pain is not as bad as it should be. Remember what camp you used to be in, what family you used to be in. You used to be in Satan's family, but now you're in the family of God. You used to be facing eternity of pain in hell. But now you experience a very mild kind of suffering here on earth. It may be very painful. I'm not trying to deny that what you experience in this world isn't painful. But it's nothing in comparison to eternity in hell. 
And so we've got to take comfort even in the midst of suffering that we are not being treated as our sins deserve. He never treats his family as their sins deserve. And so even in the midst of the most intense suffering, you can take comfort that you're not in the other camp. You're not in the other family where Peter just doesn't even mention what's going to happen to them. But if you're not a Christian, if you're not in the family of God, what are you to do? Well, become part of the family today. Repent of your sin. Do not be one of these people that's described in verse 17 as one who does not obey the gospel of God. Yes, it is hard work being a Christian. It's hard for the righteous to be saved, he says. But repent of your sin. Believe. Be obedient to the good news. Trust that Jesus Christ died for you. Recognise that if you don't, God will weigh you up and you will experience intense suffering for eternity. And fear that and turn to God instead. So you need to judge yourself worthy of suffering. Then what should you do once you have agreed with God's judgment of you? If you're a believer or a non-believer, you've agreed that you're deemed worthy of suffering. If you are a Christian and you've responded to that, consider then that if you suffer as a Christian, how terrible it is going to be for unbelievers around you. And then reach out to them. Remember, Peter is primarily writing here to believers and he's talking about what happens to unbelievers here. Why? Well, it's to comfort us when we experience uh, suffering, that we're not experiencing what one day unbelievers will experience and to answer the question of why is it so bad for us but so good for unbelievers. But also he wants you to reach out to unbelievers, get clear in your mind what it means that if we suffer in this world as the family of God, as his sons and daughters, then how bad is it going to be for your family and friends who do not trust in Jesus Christ? And then he wants you to reach out to them. That's where church growth usually comes from. It's from you as individuals talking to people around you about Jesus Christ because you're so concerned for their souls. You recognise that they're facing eternal pain. A survey of 8,000 church attendees gave reasons for why people went to church. There was a survey done um, probably about a decade ago now. I read this in a book this week. Um, and they interviewed these 8,000 people who attend different churches. And they ticked different boxes. And they could tick more than one box, so there's a bit of a variety in the results. But under 10% of the people gave these reasons as why they were at church. Under 10% of the people. They gave reasons like visitation effort was under 10%, walk-ins, so just walking into a church. They liked the church programs, so they'd seen the church programs advertised or they'd been a part of one and, and they'd like that and so that's why they attended church. Sunday school draw, drew them in, so under 10% of people, Sunday school was what brought them, brought them along. Evangelistic crusades or TV programs was what brought them along to church or they were influenced by a particular preacher. So under 10% people went, oh, I really like that preacher, so I'm going to go to that church. And then 75 to 90% came through the influence of friends and relatives. The vast majority came through the influence of friends and relatives. And you don't really need a survey to tell you that. If you want to see your friends and family escape this eternal punishment, this eternal hell, you must do a lot of the work. 
Don't rely on other Christians to evangelise your family and friends. Don't rely on your church pastor or other people at church to evangelise your family and friends who need to hear the gospel and need to be saved. You do it. What do you do to reach out to them? Well, get it clear what is being said here in verse 17 and 18 in your head. Get it clear. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the, uh, obey the gospel of God? Get it clear in your head. Answer that rhetorical question. It will be bad. If Christians suffer, then non-Christians are going to suffer intensely. Get that in your head, and that's a great motivator, to then talk to people. Get the good news clear in your head then as well, that you can be saved through Jesus Christ through repentance and faith, and then share that with them. Talk to your friends and relatives. Start conversations with them. Ask them, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you think of your own life? What Do you think you're a sinner? Do you know that you do wrong things? Start conversations like that because you are deeply concerned for their salvation. You're deeply concerned that they won't be punished for eternity as they will be. If they stay outside the family of God, they will be punished. The judgment doesn't necessarily start with them, but it ends with them. So do you recognise that God judges you, even if you're part of the family of God? Do you recognise that God evaluates your life and then disciplines you, judges you by evaluating and then punishing you where you need that punishment? Do you recognise that God does that to his own family? If God does that to his own family, it will be far worse for those who are unbelievers. And if you recognise that, do you then see the need to reach out to others and help save them from that judgement? It is hard work. I mean, it says there in verse 18, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, and it is hard. Some people, you hammer them with the gospel again and again, well, not necessarily hammer them, but chip away. And it's hard work. You see that it's very true what it says in verse 18. If it's hard, it is hard. But you're called to to do that work. Chip, chip, chip away. And often years of chip, chip, chipping away, you can see people actually come and be saved from eternity of punishment in hell. And that's a glorious thing to witness, a wonderful thing. There's really no greater joy, I think, than watching someone become a Christian, be born again, even as a direct result of you sharing the gospel with them. They would never have heard if you hadn't shared it with them. That's a wonderful joy and a privilege to do. Do you do that? Let us speak with our God now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are judge over all the earth and that you are a righteous judge, a holy judge, That you're not an impartial judge, but you judge your family and you judge those outside your family. And that you judge us worthy of suffering, even in your family, so that we may be strengthened and trained by your discipline. The Lord, we then consider if that means that we suffer in this world as your family, then how great will the suffering be of those who are outside your family? Lord, we do pray that we may consider carefully what it means for people outside the church to be judged by you. And Lord, may we then reach out to them with the good news of Jesus Christ. May we chip away at them, even if it takes years, because we know an eternity of pain for them is at stake. And Lord, we pray that you may be with us 
And may your Holy Spirit regenerate their hearts and we experience great joy even in the midst of suffering for you because we see people come out of eternity of suffering instead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.